Hello, and welcome back, and thank you to all of you who have gotten in touch with me over the last couple months, um, sent me emails or posted reviews on iTunes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to go to my grave thinking that I'm the only one other than my brother who actually listens to this. I don't know. Does that make me narcissistic? I, I kind of started this with the idea that it would just be an opportunity for me to vent about books, um, and if anybody listened, that's great, uh, and and. I found some enjoyment a little bit uh, in listening to myself speak. Um, yeah, I guess that's narcissistic, isn't it? Um, but the fact that there's actually some people out there who are listening and who I'm interacting with, I really appreciate it. Um, and, and to the very nice lady who gave me the recommendation of a book, which I don't remember what it's called, but I did buy it. I promise it's the thing about San Francisco and the Asian boy. I don't, I don't remember what it's called, but I promise I will read it. Um, and again, I encourage all of you, please, if you have recommendations, I'd love to hear them. I am always looking for new books. Um, so thank you again. And please, you can find me at booktherapy13 at gmail.com, booktherapy13 on Twitter, booktherapy on Twitter, booktherapy13, I don't remember, Rob Cohen 13. Um, so yeah, you can, you can always find me. So it's been, uh, I don't know, a month or so since we last spoke and I've read quite a few books since then, but I'm not going to go over all of them. But I did want to highlight four books, and they're along a spectrum, the spectrum of great, good, passable, awful. Those are the four. And um, interestingly enough, each of these books falls into one of those categories. So I'm going to start with the great book first, and it actually is the one that was, if I had to look on my to-be-read file, or my to-be-read shelf, and picked out a book that would be the best of them or the most exciting of them, this was not the book I would have selected. This is actually a book that I was nervous about reading and um, was so pleasantly surprised by it and impressed by it that it shocked myself, it shocked me. Um, and the book is called Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. And I'm sure um, some of you have heard of this book or you've at least heard of Neil Gaiman. I've had only one prior experience with Neil Gaiman and that was reading the book called, um, okay, what was it called? It was called Good Omens with that he wrote with Terry Pratchett. And I read that quite a few years ago, and I don't really remember a whole lot about it. Um, but this book kind of came to me by accident, and I wasn't sure what it was about, and picked it up anyways because... Um, I'm not really sure. I can tell you that I was on Goodreads very long time ago, a couple of years ago probably, and I was looking for new books to read, recommendations, things like that, and this book popped up. And the thing about it that was immediately attractive is that it had a picture of Big Ben on the cover. And as you know, as we've discussed, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and I like those... Um, I like the books about England and London and uh, certainly Victorian England, although this is a, a contemporary tale. But I saw the cover of the book, which had um, Big Ben on it, and so that was enough for me to at least read the synopsis of it. And the synopsis of it was a little bit bizarre to me, something about uh, a, a gentleman who gets caught up in a war in the underworld of London, this um, not a mirror image of London, but a, a world that, that um, exists underneath London and where no Londoners are, are aware, no Londoners can visit, something along those lines. Sound a little bit strange, sounded somewhat interesting. I didn't figure I'd ever read it, but I did put on my Goodreads that it was something I wanted to read. Then I didn't think about it. 
didn't do anything to try and find it, didn't order it on Amazon, nothing. It just kind of sat there. And a few months ago, I was in San Diego, and uh, my daughter and I were walking through Barnes & Noble, and I, for whatever reason, went into a section I never go into, which is the fantasy section, and there was this book, nice uh, pocket-sized paperback of the kind that I remember from being a kid, the kind that could fit in your pocket, the kind that when you're at work and you can put it in your pocket and go to the bathroom, that kind of a size book, you know what I'm talking about, the kinds of size books that don't really exist anymore. <laughs> So I picked it up, said, oh, it's got a different color, but it's certainly the same book that uh, that I had learned of uh, however long ago it was, and so I decided to pick it up. And then I put it on my bookshelf, and it sat there for a few months, and finally I decided I would get around to reading it. I confess, after the first 50 or so pages, I was seriously considering putting it down. I had no clue what was going on. I couldn't figure out who was who. I couldn't picture these things. One of the problems I have with fantasy and sci-fi is I, I, I perceive myself as not having a, an imagination. And it really requires the author to so explicitly create the scene for me and describe the characters. Otherwise, I can't picture it. And I was having a little bit of trouble because it does feel at some points that you're entering the book in the middle of the story because there are characters that are brand new and yet seem to be in the middle of character arcs. And yet, after 50 pages, I was really contemplating whether I wanted to continue to read it. But I did. And I absolutely loved this book. It was so much fun. It didn't hurt, by the way, that I read um, one of the reviews. There's a review that actually shows up on the back side, on the back cover of the book. And the, the review is from the Minneapolis Star Tribune from whenever it is, because this book was written, um, gosh, the book was written in 1996, so it's not a new book. And the Minneapolis Star Tribune called it a dark contemporary Alice in Wonderland. So I had this concept in my mind already of an Alice in Wonderland. And interestingly enough, it really kind of helped in my reading to picture it as a contemporary Alice in Wonderland. I'm not saying I wouldn't have gotten to that conclusion on my own if I hadn't read this review, or at least the blurb on the back of the book, but it really helped because I was able to then picture the circumstances that gave rise to our hero's entrance into this underground world of London and to perceive it as a a fairy tale, um, which is what it was. The idea is that our, our intrepid hero, Richard Mayhew, who is kind of a plain, boring, you know, man in London who moved to London for a job and um, then met this this woman and she was his girlfriend and he'd asked her to marry him but she was like this domineering bitch and he felt he was in a dead-end relationship where he'd agreed to marry her and couldn't figure out a way out and wasn't really enjoying his life let alone his relationship with her and he comes across this woman as he and his fiance are going to a very important dinner meeting for his fiance and her boss and this woman is obviously in a lot of pain and has been has been beaten up, injured, bleeding on the on the sidewalk. His fiance decides it's time to just keep moving, steps right over her. But Richard, our hero, decides he can't do that, and he picks up this girl and he takes her home to clean her up and nurse her back to health. Little does he know that she is an important member of the Underworld Society of London, that she was being 
um, beaten up by basically assassins hired by some bad guy, and that now that Richard has interceded in this underground war, basically, he can't go back to London the way it was. He is no longer amongst the normal people of London. He tries to go to his job. He tries to interact with his fiance. They don't know who he is. They don't know uh, anything about him. In fact, some of them see right through him and don't engage with him at all. So just by being the Good Samaritan that he was, he's now basically become a man without a country. And so he ends up following this woman into the underworld of London and on her trek with her little motley crew of cohorts, they trek through underworld London um, in order to, um, well, I don't want to give the whole story. It's a little bit actually of a, of a hybrid when I think about it, a hybrid of Alice in Wonderland and the Wizard of Oz because this kind of hybrid motley crew of, of hers and his together, I guess, they're set on different tasks. They have to go acquire this. They have to go do that. Kind of like how Dorothy and her crew get to the Wizard of Oz and he sends them on a trek to go get the witch's shoes. This is very similar. They actually get to meet the person who's going to um, let Richard go back home and resolve the war that's going on underground. And this person sends them off on another wild goose chase to go retrieve something of importance and wealth, or at least importance. Um, and, and what assisted me so much in reading the book and understanding it and, and, and visualizing it is it, it doesn't necessarily take place in underground London, except it does, but in a way that's familiar to me, it's familiar to a reader. One point, they're all in Herod's. They're all in the, the, the basement floor of Herod's, the marketplace of Herod's, where they, the underground world of London has come up to do a, um, you know, engage in a, in a, a, a shop, um, whatever they call it, I don't remember what it was. And then they're in, um, they're in the underground stations, and they're in an underground, uh, in, a, in a tube train. Um, and so there are parts of it where it, it's a little bit fuzzy, hard to, to uh, picture the, the scenario of where things were taking place. But for the most part, they were taking place in, in places and scenes and settings that I could, I could visualize because I've been to London so many times and I spent a lot of time there and, and I have such a, a connection and love for the city that it was easy for me to welcome in these people and these settings and these scenes into my, into my imagination. I really enjoyed the book. I really recommend it. Um, I, it, it, it's what, what kind of pissed me off is this book, like I said, was 1996 and, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Barnes & Noble, and it just so happens on the new releases table where they have all the displays of all the brand new hardcover books, there's a re-release of this book in hardcover. And it's like, really? It's of all times for this book to be re-released in hardcover two months after I buy it and read it and 18, 19 years after it was written. What is the coincidence about that? It doesn't make any sense. Um but it, it, it gave, got me to the point where there's a lot of following for Neil Gaiman, and he's uh, certainly well-respected and well-read, and people really, really love him. And I haven't read any of his other books other than that that Good Omens that I mentioned. But some of these I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in reading now that I've gotten more used to a style, and I can convince myself that I'll be able to visualize the descriptions and the settings that the author will portray. 
Um, but some of these I'm really interested in, in reading, like American Gods. I know that the uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane came out a year or two ago and was really well regarded. And so I'm, I think I'm going to give it a little bit more attention and maybe pick up a couple of these other books because this one was just so enjoyable. Now, I did do a little research because I figured a book of this nature had to have been made into a movie. And um, yeah, I found out that, that there was. It actually was made into a miniseries in the UK. And what's interesting is I'm not really sure what came first, the chicken or the egg, the book or the miniseries. And as I'm trying to piece together a little bit of the, the scenario, it seems as if the concept for the miniseries came first, it was pitched, it was developed, and then Neil Gaiman turned it into a novel, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, I don't think that any of the um, any of the the discs for the uh, for the the miniseries are available, so I think it's just going to have to, for the time being, reside in my imagination, and will you know go forward from there until until I can find it in someplace else. So that was Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, and uh, if you're any interest in fantasy, or even if you're interested in London, this was a kind of a cool a cool jaunt through uh, a London of the underworld in a very fairy tale kind of way. So the second book I want to talk about is by Linwood Barclay called No Safe House. And it is the follow-up to the novel No Time for Goodbye that if you've been listening for a while, you'll recall Phil and I read and uh, talked about last year sometime. Now, No Time for Goodbye was the story of the, uh, the woman, Cynthia, who wakes up one morning and discovers that... Uh, all of her family is missing, mom, dad, brother. And this is as she's a, a teenager. And time goes by, 20-something years, whatever it is, and then she finally discovers what happened to her family. Very suspenseful, very uncomfortable. Um, I really don't remember whether Phil or I had uh, um, raves about it. I think I gave it four stars at the time, and I don't think Phil was as excited about the book. And we actually talked about whether we would read this book. Um, I think on the podcast we talked about it because we knew that there was a sequel. And Phil mentioned he wasn't interested and I wasn't really so sure. And so I didn't immediately pick up the book when it was available. And in fact, I didn't really pick it up until uh, last month sometime when uh, we were planning a trip to Vegas as a, a weekend vacation. And I really wanted something light and airy and uh, a good beach read to take with me. So I picked it up and uh, I, I didn't, I didn't feel that there was a, a disappointment to it. It, I think that the aspect about it that Phil struggled with as the concept for there being a follow-up book was how much shit can you put this family through um, and how realistic does a second chapter in their lives um, feel? How, how realistic is it really? Um, I think he, he had done a little research to see that the, the family was kind of broken up. Cynthia and her husband, Terry Archer, are broken up, separated, whatever it was. And I think that Phil had a, a very difficult time with that. Um, I don't really give it that much thought. I kind of just wanted a good read. And uh, I've had good experiences with Barclay's books in the past and figured that I'd pick it up. And I liked it. Um, the part about it that I think Phil struggled with um, was really kind of easily understood. Um, obviously, Cynthia has gone through this terrible, um, terrible uh, um, 
events of her life, uh, beginning with the discovery that her parents and brother are gone, to the life-threatening events which concluded the, uh, the first book. And so this book starts out with her really having struggled with that, struggled with who she is, struggled with her relationship with her husband. She and her daughter um, are butting heads constantly, and, um, and she feels as if she needs to get away. It's not that she doesn't love them. It's that she needs time to herself because she really hasn't come to grips with, the, with her past and with the discovery that uh, came throughout the, the, the first book. And so she moves out to an apartment, just a, a little separation always with this expectation that she was going to come home. And while that happens, Grace, who is their daughter, she's a, a an early teenager, she falls in with a little bit of a bad crowd, which isn't really that descriptive other than she starts seeing a boy who happens to be part of a bad crowd. And she and he decide that, you know, they're going to take things up a notch. Maybe they're going to... Um, they're, they're making out in a car, and he says that he knows where a really, really cool car is. I think it's a Ferrari. Somebody, It's at somebody's house. And so he convinces her to go to the house. He's going to um, steal the keys out of the house, take the Ferrari for a test drive, and then bring it back, and nothing will happen. And nobody will be the wiser because the people who live at the house and own the Ferrari, they're on vacation. Well, of course, things go bad. And um, while he, the, the boyfriend, is trying to find the keys in this darkened house, which she ends up going into the house with him, um, shots are fired. He, something happens to him that she doesn't know, and she ends up escaping, and then things unravel from there. Um, it, it ends up involving the, the gangster character who, who was sort of the nefarious foe, uh, nefarious... Uh, um, Gosh, I mean, how do you call? He was he was an asshole, and he's not a likable guy. But he ended up kind of being the hero in the first book. Uh, but he's still an asshole, and he's still not likable. But it turns out that this is more about his story and about his illegal activities and how, because of his illegal activities, he's now wrapped. He's now brought the Archer family into the fold and put them at risk. So I liked it because it's a different twist on the gangster novel. Um, the the concept of the crime that the gangsters are committing is really kind of inventive and creative and different and not something I ever would have given any thought to. Um, and spoiler alert, I'm going to let you in a little bit on what it is. What he's done, what Vince has done, as he's determined when people are going to be out of town and he has bribed people who have access to those homes to give him access to the homes. So when they're out of town, he goes into their homes and he hides think he hides things in their attics or in places in the homes where they won't look. He hides things like money and weapons and other things of that nature. And what happens is these bad guys um, find out about this. They're searching for a treasure in particular, and they start knocking off these houses and committing murders and stuff, trying to find this treasure. And of course, as we later find out, one of the houses that, that Vince has been using is our very own Archer house, and that's where the grand conclusion of the matter begins. And of course, Terry is our unwilling hero and unwilling uh, participant in the nefarious activities ends up getting wrapped in like he did at the at the end of the first book. 
But I like it for a couple of reasons, and they actually don't necessarily tie directly to the story. As you can imagine, especially for the first couple hundred pages, and this is a um, almost 500-page book, He's got to set it up. He's got to bring all of the characters together in some way. He can't just spring characters on us, and he can't go 50 pages at a time to develop a character or a story arc. So he has this this terrific ability to increase the tension and increase the suspense by alternating and switching off chapters. And they're typically very short chapters. I think this book ended up after... 400 and something pages it had something like 75 chapters so some of the chapters are very short two or three or four pages long and so just when something is going to happen involving one set of characters the author switches chapters brings in a brand new set of characters and starts that character arc going so you're constantly reading ahead you're constantly finishing a chapter and saying i gotta find out what happens next with these people But I have to get through this chapter about these people first. And of course, by reading that chapter, it creates tension with respect to those characters. And so it creates this compulsive readability and eagerness to keep going. And that is, that's something that I wish all authors could do. (laughs) It's a talent. It certainly requires a whole lot of editing and a lot of outlining, I would imagine, although I don't know if Barclay outlines his, his books ahead of time, but it's not something that you can just write, you know, pick up a blank piece of paper and start writing. This is really well thought out, especially where the character break, the uh, chapter breaks are going to be, at what point he decides he's going to stop a chapter, right when the 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 the, the tensity is at its tightest. That's when he switches to another character, and it creates a reading experience which is breathless and rapid, and I love that. I love the compulsiveness of my reading experience. I love the feeling that I have to keep reading because I have to know what happens next. And I've gone through some authors where they're just not as successful at doing that. And one of the books that that I'm going to talk about next is exactly like that, where it's an interesting concept, the story feels like it would be a good story, and yet the intensity and the expediency, and, and not not expediency, the better word, the emergency of it. Like if I don't read another chapter, these characters are going to hang in the balance until I get back to it. And in in the form, the previous books that I've read from Barclay, and I think I've read three, I've read uh, obviously No Time for Goodbye, I read... Um, Oh, Too Close to Home, which was the first one, which I really, really liked. And then this one, um, he he does that. They're 500-page books, which are not short books. But he he ramps up the intensity that the pages just fly by. And so that alone is reason enough to read the books. Not necessarily about the, the, the crime itself or the reveal or the denouement or anything like that. I mean, those certainly will... will will make the reading experience worthwhile. But the 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 measure of awe that I have for the author who can twist and turn and 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 scramble your insides as you wait with bated breath to see what happens next, that that's a true talent. And that's um, you know, I, I'd love to sit down with this guy and say, okay, how do you do that? Do you outline it ahead of time? Do you 
Do you write each of their stories separately and then cut them together? I mean, how is that done? Because it's not, I mean, I guess you could write it like you'd, like you'd film a movie. You film a movie and you, you film it out of order. You film the scenes and then you splice them together. And maybe that's how he does it. Or maybe he's got post-it notes all over his desk and all over his computer and all over his walls trying to keep things together. Or he writes this scene and then he writes this scene and that scene and then he pieces them together like a puzzle. I'd really love to find that out because it's very fascinating and impressive. And um, he's got a new book that just came out called Broken Promises, I think. And I picked that one up. I'm interested in, in reading that. I'll get to it very soon. And I think that's the beginning of a new series or at least a trilogy of books, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the issue with Lewin Barclay, I'm going to be honest, I don't know that I will end up reading all of his books because some of the, the, the subjects that I've looked into the previous books are unsettling to the point where they are excruciating for me. Dealing with kidnapped kids, dealing with children in danger, dealing with um, husbands who lose their wives, things like that where I'm sure they're astounding, I'm sure they're pulse-pounding and intense, but I just don't know whether I want to be put in an uncomfortable situation like that um, where it's it's that disturbing. Um, I'll have to look. I do have another... Uh, one of his books on the bookshelf that's uh, um, called Trust Your Eyes. I haven't picked up yet. It, I haven't read. It uh, seems a lot like Rear Window, um, which I really liked. Great movie. So I'll probably eventually get to that. So that was No Safe House by Linwood Barclay. And uh, the next book, which, okay, so so if you're keeping score, the first book, Neverwhere, was the great one. The second one, No Safe House, was the good one. The third one was the okay one. And that's called The Medea Complex by Rachel Florence Roberts. All right. For, first and foremost, if you're wondering, because you probably noticed I took a little break, I got to tell you what I'm drinking. Um, so the first glass was finishing off my bottle of Jack Daniels Tennessee Honey Bourbon. I get it on the rocks. I actually have this um, this mold that creates these, these um, ice cubes, which are basically the size of baseballs or maybe a little bit smaller than baseballs. And they fit right into my square shaped glass so i mean it just the the bourbon and the and the ice and it just fits perfectly but so i finished off that i had to go downstairs i got another drink now this one is in case you're interested i found this at my local supermarket i'd never heard of it before and i've got a ton of bottles of bourbon and whiskey and scotch i think i've got like 40 bottles something like this and this was a a bourbon i'd never heard of before called J.R. Ewing bourbon, Kentucky bourbon, J.R. Ewing, you know, like Dallas. And in the, the bottles, there's a really cool kind of square-shaped bottle, really thick glass. And on the back of the bottle is uh, the, the, um, the, the, an image of the South Fork Ranch sign that uh, was obviously very prominent in the television show Dallas. So when I saw this at the supermarket, and the problem is you can't, really get samples of these things if you know you either buy the 35 or 40 dollar bottle or you never know what it tastes like so i bought it because i was a huge fan of dallas growing up and i'm i'm 39 years old so dallas was already pretty popular show by the time i was even watching tv because i know it started in the in the early 80s and so what our family would do dallas as you probably remember was on friday nights on cbs at nine o'clock 10 o'clock was Falcon Crest. I don't remember what was 8 o'clock. If any of you remember what was on at 8 o'clock on Friday nights on CBS before Dallas, 
email me or tweet tweet at me and let me know because I cannot for the life of me remember. But what we would do is we would obviously watch Dallas at on Friday nights at nine o'clock. But they had also started, at least here in Los Angeles, to rerun all of the earlier episodes, starting with the very first episodes when Jock was around and um, uh, you know everything was just getting started. So they would show those every night at like seven o'clock, six or seven o'clock on like the local channel nine station. And so we would watch every night during dinner the the reruns, you know, the the syndication, and then we'd watch the Friday night show at nine o'clock. This was mom and dad and my brother and I. So now, you know, fast forward thirty years, they have J.R. Ewing Bourbon, and what am I going to do? Not buy it? I mean, how could I not buy it? So I bought it, and it's really good. Um, I've never seen it again. I I don't know whether maybe I got the only bottle they ever made. Um, but it's really good. So that was what I went down and just got. So anyways, getting back to the important, back to the lecture at hand. Um, the Medea Complex by Rachel Florence Roberts. This was an impulse buy. And damned if I stop doing impulse buys. I'm telling you, that I, I don't know why I do it. I don't know why. I can go into a bookstore and sometimes I just don't feel it. You know, we've all done it. You go into the bookstore, you're like, I don't really need to buy any books today. And this book looks interesting. I'm okay not buying it. That book looks interesting. Okay, I'm okay not buying it. And sometimes you go into the bookstore and it's like, I'll take that and 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 you walk out with seven books. This time I walked into the bookstore and I only went to buy specific books, books that had just come out. I went to buy... um Finders Keepers by, by Stephen King, which we talked about. I went to buy Radiant Angel by Nelson DeMille, which we talked about. Um, I think that was it. I think I'd only gone in to buy those books. And yet as I'm walking by one of the stupid tables, I see this book called The Medea Complex. Now, problem number one, and I'm sorry. Oh, God, I hate saying this. You know what? I'm not going to say it. I was going to say my mistake was it's written by a woman, but I'm not going to say that because that's not fair. Um, but le- okay, but let's let's get back for a second. Um, the book actually felt like it should have been much better. The idea is that that it's it's 1885 in. Well, it doesn't say, but damned if I didn't think it was England or London. Okay, so already right there you're thinking, okay, cobblestone streets. We got Victorian London. Okay, a good start. We've got a woman who's in, been committed to a, a lunatic asylum and deemed insane for some sort of unspeakable crime she committed. So far, so good. We've got her husband who has, his, has, has had his life ruined by his wife but is still torn because he loves her. And then we've got a chief medical officer at this lunatic asylum hospital who's trying to piece together exactly what happened. And it's a, as it says, it's a darkly compelling story of a lunatic, a lie, and a shocking revelation that elucidates the difference between madness and evil. Well, damn, I'm sold, right? It's my impulse buy. Never heard of the book, never heard of the author. It's got a couple of people who, who wrote reviews about it. It says it's uh, based on true events of the Victorian era. Rob Cohen is a sucker. He'll buy it. 
<sighs> now, when I was reading this book, I was thinking about how I was going to make this into a huge big joke when I discussed it with you. How I was going to say I, I couldn't really figure out how Tyler Perry was going to make this into a movie. Um, that this is the Medea complex, and yet there are no African-American characters in the book, um, let alone... Well, I don't, I don't know what they're called. They're obviously not African-American in the UK, but you catch my drift. There's no description in the book that there are characters that are of that race. And so how I'm very interested to hear how Tyler Perry makes this into a movie. But he is an accomplished actor and a wonderful director. And if anybody can do it, he could. But I'm not going to make that joke because that's stupid. But the book was just kind of... I don't know. It it was kind of just there. It was predictable. Um, I, I'm i kind of at a loss. This is maybe the first time I, I don't really have anything to say about a book. It it alternated characters pretty well. Um, the, 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 I'm sorry, altered characters and chapters. And each chapter, by the way, was told from the standpoint or the perspective of a different character. So you had the the chapter that was told by the the quote-unquote lunatic Anne. You had the chapter that was told by the husband Edgar. You had the chapter that was told by the doctor, Dr. Savage. You have the chapter that was told by the nurse or whoever it was. Um, but it just... I don't know. I don't know what it could have done to be better, but it just wasn't good enough. Um... It got a little bit old with the Anne character faking, which we knew she was faking. I mean, there's no secret to that. Faking being insane, it got old because it seemed like she was insane for 100 pages. And yet, the doctor seemed to clear her and give her a clean bill of health and say she was cured fairly early on in the book as well. And it was only a 330-page book or something like that. And yet, I don't know, around page 150 or so, Anne was was determined to be sane and cured and all that good stuff. And home she goes, and then things kind of get worse from there. But I don't, I don't know. It, it seemed as if the author purposely inserted chauvinistic positions the Dr. Savage clearly is made out to be a buffoon, especially with his antiquated perception of women. And all of this could have been avoided if you had prevented Anne from reading, that kind of stuff. Um, it kind of ends up getting bogged down in the quote-unquote conspiracy of it and that Edgar, the husband, was married to her for the wrong reasons and she found out about it but he really loved her, but she was a psychopath. And look, no spoiler, she killed their kid, but it wasn't their kid. They bought a kid on the black market. I mean, it's just all those things seem like it would make a a compelling story. And yet I found myself at times pushing to read. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't interested to find out what happened. It just seemed as if there were too many chapters that didn't move the story forward. And I don't know whether that was because she had turned an initial draft and it just wasn't long enough or 
there was this belief that she needed to really hammer home the points about some of these characters, but it, it did seem as if there were chapters that didn't go anywhere. Um, and at the end, she gets away with it, and the good guy, the quote-unquote goodbye, uh, a good guy, he doesn't get away with it. He, he, he ends up dying. And so um, I just, I, I, don't, I don't really want to talk about this book anymore. I don't, I, I just, I felt, it was disappointing. It's, it's again, you know, I've read a lot of books where it's kind of like, wow, if I'd only had that idea, I wish that I could have been able to write something because I think I could have done it better. This one, as I perceived it in my head, was so much more different and scary and intense and suspenseful than what this ended up being. So the Medea complex. Oh, the other aspect of it is you can do the research and you can look up ahead of time what the Medea complex is. If you do that, you know what the whole story is about. If you don't do that, like I didn't, and you spend the time expecting that somebody perhaps this Dr. Savage, is going to say, oh, she has the Medea complex. That is blah, 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 blah. That never happens. The, the, the explanation of what the Medea complex is never shows up in the book. The words Medea complex are never uttered in the book at all. And it was only after the book was over that I went, looked it up and went, oh, well, I'm glad I didn't look that up ahead of time because it would have told me exactly what this book was about. The other thing about this is, Maybe you can help me because I don't understand it. This book had a reader's guide. Why? Why Why does it have questions for discussion? Why? why is that because they're anticipating that this is going to be a book club book? And if that's the case, what makes it a book club book? Who determines that a book needs a reader's guide? Is this supposed to be a suspense thriller or is this supposed to be a thought-provoking novel that's to be the subject of long-term discussion? Who makes that decision? Is it the editor? Is it the publisher? And, and, and why? Because as soon as I see two things, okay, two things about a book immediately put me on guard. One, if there's an introduction, an introduction by somebody else, somebody who has to sit there and explain to you about what you're going to read, which, by the way, usually contains spoilers, so I don't read the introductions anymore. Or two, a reader's guide, because we, we the, the authors, we the publishers, think that you only read this book for entertainment and you're not getting enough out of it, so we're going to give you questions to think because we want it to be thought-provoking. Really? I don't get it. I remember a book I read a long time ago called The Memory Keeper's Daughter. I'm sure some of you read it. I think it was by Kim Edwards. And I only picked it up because I like reading books about twins. And this was about twins separated at birth or some bullshit like that. And I remember it it had this reader's guide at the end. And I was so fed up with the book by the time I finished it that I did not have any care in the world about this reader's guide. Like... Like the, like the author needs to help you to understand the book. If the author can't help you to understand the book simply by what's in the book, th then I, I don't know. Is there something wrong? Does it, is there, I, I don't get it. Maybe that's just over my head. I just don't understand. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 
And the last book. Remember, great, good, okay, blech. This is the blech book. And it's going to surprise you. This is a book called Flesh and Blood by Patricia Cornwell. Now, what's interesting to me is I didn't notice this, but other than, well, no, not other than, Patricia Cornwell is the second highest selling female author of all time. And no, I'm not including the Bible and God, because I don't know whether God's a woman or man. But she is second to, and you probably can figure out who it is, Agatha Christie. So she's been around for a long time. And prior to this book, I've only read one of her books. Now, let me tell you about my, my reading experience with Patricia Cornwell, because it'll explain to you why I've stayed away for all this time. She's got something like 20 Case Scarpetta books. That's her main character, Medical Examiner Case Scarpetta. So let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22 books. This is, what, 23, I guess. And I read book number one. Yeah, book number one. In paperback, I didn't read it in hardcover. I'm not that, uh, that, whatever, geeky. Um, but I read it in paperback. Postmortem was the very first K. Scarpetta novel. And I read it back in hardcover. And I read it at a time when I was really concerned with being like a bibliophile. Is that the right word? No, that's probably not a word. Book snob. That's a better word. Where it was all about making sure I was reading the books that were on the bestseller lists. And I read so many books that I picked up only because they were on the bestseller lists. And I knew about Patricia Cornwell because I didn't pick it up. This wasn't like it was her first book and she hadn't written any others when I read it. I, there had been a couple others. But she'd already begun to grow some measure of success and fame and being a, a, a strong follower of mystery thrillers and, and uh, murder mysteries especially, I picked it up. And it wasn't very long. I think it maybe was 300 pages or something like that. And I remember that when the book was over, I was so incredibly pissed off because the reveal was a nobody. And if you've read this book, and if you remember it very well, and, I'm, and, and if I am remembering it wrong, please let me know. Please let me know. Because the way I remember it is that the culprit, the bad guy, the murderer, was some secondary character who had gotten maybe a page worth of of attention and was disregarded or fell into the in the background as being an unimportant character. And that, by the way, kind of interestingly factors in with the Agatha Christie co uh, connection that the two of them have, because Agatha Christie, by the way, is known, notorious for coming up with these culprits at the end of the book that you never even met or didn't hear of or didn't consider, that kind of stuff. So my, re re my recollection of Postmortem by... Patricia Cornwell was of that same vein, that it was a character who nobody had, had thought of, heard of, remembered even seeing before. This is the bad guy, and I felt incredibly cheated. And for the most part, I'll give you one shot. If you fuck it up, if I don't like your book, I'm not reading any others. Very rarely will I take a book I didn't like and yet still read a later book. It doesn't happen. Why Why would it? You know, Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me, you fool me twice, shame on, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. 
So it's been a good 20 some odd years since I've read a Patricia Cornwell novel. And I was at Sam's Club and again, impulse by, I saw this paperback, Flesh and Blood. It's the most recent paperback. So she's got a, a new book out in hardcover, but this is the one that came out last year, I guess. And it sounded kind of interesting, reading the back blurb of it, this idea that there's a, a killer out there who is specifically tormenting Kay Scarpetta. Um, there's a belief that it's going to lead back to somebody who's close to her. All these people are getting murdered, things like that. And, and this, is, this is hitting close to home. Now, I like the stories where the main character is in some sort of danger and it's directly tied to them because you know what? I don't know. It just it just feels like there's more of an intensity to it. And because it usually gives you more insight in who the character is. The character isn't just an automaton, but the character has a background and has a depth that has somehow resulted in them becoming the focus of the bad guy's efforts. And so in this book, it, it, it was portrayed as being that. It was going to be somebody who was connected with Case Scarpetta, um, and was targeting her. And look, I'll be honest, the forensics of it and the the science of the crimes are unbelievable how knowledgeable she is. Uh, Cornwell, obviously, with the way that she writes this stuff. But I'm going to make a couple of immediate immediate character assassinations, let's say. Number one. Kay Scarpetta is a bitch. She's not likable. She is mean. And frankly, I wouldn't want to meet her. So that's problem number one. Number two, this book had dredged up, or dredged up is not the right word. This book had too much to do with internal politics. This detective doesn't get along with that detective. This detective is going to be pursued by the FBI. This, whatever. Who gives a shit? I really don't care. And maybe, I'm going to be honest, I will be honest, if I'd been reading these books one at a time for the last 20 years, maybe I would care. But I didn't. And to me, it bogged down the story. This is a 500-page a mystery. A 500-page murder mystery. And it could have been a whole lot shorter if you'd cut out the stupid politics. Number three. Her husband... It's kind of a dork. I just, he's, there's nothing special about him. And I don't get the relationship between the two of them. And frankly, I don't care about the relationship between the two of them. Fourth, I don't really understand how Kay Scarpetta seems to have allowed or permitted or somebody has allowed her to let all of her you know, family members be involved in, in fighting crime. Because she's got this daughter, stepdaughter, no, adopted daughter, stepdaughter, whatever the hell it is, um, who she took in and raised, who's like some multi-billionaire because she was a, 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 a computer whiz who sold a program or whatever it is. And now she spends her time working for the working for the Emmy's office or something like that. I, you know, honestly, I don't remember. But she seemed to have a lot of access to the medical lab, you know, the, the Emmy's lab. So that was the other part. It just didn't seem feasible that that family members would be that involved in the work but let's get to the crux of it let's get to what i really thought remember what i told you about post-mortem and how thing i didn't like about it was 
It ended up with the reveal, the bad guy being somebody that nobody ever thought of. Well, it turns out that this book ended up... the Okay, first off, they want you to believe that the bad guy is somebody close to Kay Scarpetta. That all signs are supposed to point to this stepdaughter, daughter, adopted daughter, whatever it is. Because the method of the crime, the, the murders were were uh, uh, were accomplished with precision sniper precision from a a highly elevated position to the point where it was almost as if there was a downward trajectory and so the only person that was around at the time that the murder took place who was in this elevated elevated position with the abilities of a sniper is case Scarpetta's adopted daughter or whatever it is and frankly i don't even remember her name right now that's how much i didn't give a shit um what the hell was her name lucy lucy is that her name i don't know i'm sorry i'm sorry i feel like i'm not doing a good job because i didn't care um but anyways so they want you to believe that it's her of course the the author doesn't even build up the intensity with the belief that it's her. It's kind of like said it as an aside. Well, you know, she's the only one who could have done it. Okay, but they're not really investigating her. So big fucking deal. But then the reveal. Oh, the reveal. Now remember how many books I told you there were? Remember. We'll go ahead again. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. This is book 22. And the bad guy was somebody from book four. I had to look it up. I had to Wikipedia it because I had no clue who this person was. I'm sure some of you who have read these books over the last 20 years and reread them and reread them and reread them, you are such dorks and, 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 and snobs and pseudo fans, not pseudo, uh, super fans that you've read these books so many times that you remember who these people are. But I got to tell you, it is not fair to make the bad guy somebody from 16 damn books ago, 17 books ago. And somebody, by the way, who the reader 17 books ago thought died because apparently that's how that book ended. That person died. And now you're led to believe that that person didn't die. Are you freaking kidding me come on is this cornwell back to her old tricks same problem i had when i read it the first time or is this her mo please those of you who are patricia cornwell fans out there please tell me is that what she does is every book like this is every book a reveal of somebody you've never freaking heard of before and if that's the case what is it about the books that you like because it's not the character, because she ain't nice. She's not likable. I found, I'm going to be honest, for the first half of this book, I found myself liking the book in spite of the characters. I didn't like any of the characters, and yet I liked the book. It was fast-moving. It was interesting. There were some some creative uh, crimes and, and perspectives. Yeah, it was a little predictable. I would think things in my head, and then the character would say it. 
I would make connections the character ultimately made. But it was it was inventive, it was creative, and even though I really didn't give a shit about the characters and didn't like them, I liked the book. And then she pulls this crap with making the bad guy somebody from 16, 17, 18, whoever, however many books ago it was. Why? Why is that fair? If you're an author, and I think about this as as concerts, because I love to go to concerts. I love live music, and I especially love seeing bands. I love performing live. That band knows, even if they've been around for 20 years, that there is somebody who is in the audience who's never heard them before, who's never been to their show before, or who doesn't own one of their CDs. Or, I'm sorry, pardon me, forgive me, who hasn't downloaded any of their music off iTunes. So the band knows that there's somebody out there that they've got to touch, that they've got to perform for. They're going to obviously get their fans to keep coming back, but they want to develop new fans. Don't authors want to do the same thing? Don't they understand or believe or expect that each new book is a new opportunity to bring in new fans? It's one thing to sell a lot of books now. It's another thing to sell back catalog books because that's found money. The books have already been written. The books have already been marketed. The books have already been sold. But if Joe Schmo off the street picks up book 22, Flesh and Blood, and says, that's a pretty damn good book. I want to see where it starts and goes back to the beginning. You've got a new fan. And now the new fan is buying up all of the previous catalog. Does don't Authors know that, right? They get it. And yet, Patricia Cornwell, this book didn't do that. Come on, that's not fucking fair. You can't do that. You can't make the bad guy somebody from 15, 16, 18, however many goddamn books ago it was. It's just not fair. Because the general casual reader who's just picking up the book and just picking up Patricia Cornwell for the first time is not going to want to read any more books. Unless you've established it as an ongoing thing and you let the new reader know. How do you do that? I don't know, but I'm not the writer. Make it somebody else. But I, I just don't get it. It's just not it's not fair. And what makes it what and, and not fair is a, a weird word. Let's put it a different way. It's just not enjoyable. I don't feel like I got my money's worth. I feel like I got played. I feel like I got taken advantage of. And I definitely am never, ever, ever going to read any more Patricia Cornwell novels. I don't need it. You know, I used to be this book snob. I used to have to read all of the books that were on the bestseller list. And you know what? Now, I don't care. I want to read good books. I'll pick up books I'd never heard of before by authors I'd never heard of before. If I didn't, I never would have discovered some of these authors. I never would have discovered a Peter James or a James McCreet or a Dan Waddell. Never. I, ne I never would have found these because I only would have been focused on the bestseller list. I'm only interested in these books, Tunnel Vision, and I would be doing a disservice to myself. So I'm not doing it anymore. I, I, you know what? 
Patricia, Cornwell, fool me once, shame on me. Do you, me, fool me twice, whatever the hell it is. All right, got a couple more minutes, two more quick books. One was called The Find, no, The Finder, The Finder, The Fixer by Joseph Finder, not Finder. Met this guy at uh, Thriller Fest last year. We talked about it. And I was actually reading his book, Vanished, at the time. And this is his new one, out in hardcover. I liked it. Um, kind of a, a an interesting idea, good concept. I'm not sure if that the the delivery was as great as I expected, but uh, a a guy, um, his father is in a uh, in a home, an old age home. He had a stroke and has never recovered. And he goes back to the family home and decides he's going to fix it up and try and get it sold. And he looking in the walls and finds a couple million dollars in cash uh, that's been stored there. And so he now wants to figure out where the money came from. And of course, he ends up getting attacked and so, you know, they're trying to kill him and all that kind of stuff. And he's on the run. Um, it was interesting, a great concept. I'm just not sure that the delivery was quite as good as I expected, but still a fun read. And, um, and, and I like, I like Joseph Finder because I like his social media presence. I follow him on Facebook, I follow him on Twitter, and he is always active. He's posting pictures of his dog, and he's asking what people are reading, and he seems to really want to be engaged with his readers, he, even to the point where he'll ask a question, and if you respond, he might respond back. And so I like that. I really think that in the in this age of, of the 21st century where social media is so important, engaging with your audience can really be an important aspect of, of the reading experience. So for that, I, I really enjoyed the Fixer, and I like Joseph Finder. And the last book I want to talk about, Peter James, um, Perfect People. Now, this is not a Roy Grace novel. This is one of his standalones. And I'm going to tell you, it was really unsettling. It was it was heartfelt, but also distressing. And basically, the the it, it kind of trans, transfer, traversed genres because it starts out as this kind of morality tale about genetic engineering and a husband and wife who for un, uh, just unfortunately lost their son to a a disease a disease which which both the mother and father I think carried a gene for and the the kid died that their son died at such a young age and they want to have another child but they want to 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 make sure that this new child isn't exposed to the same disease it doesn't have the same gene. So they find out that there's a doctor who is actually allowing uh, parents to select the genetic makeup of their kids. And so he um, invites them to his yacht in the Caribbean, I think is where it was. And they go through this whole entire process of selecting which genes they want and which genes they won't, they don't want. And um, it ends up that um, they get pregnant. And the woman ends up having twins, which they didn't want. They only wanted one child, and they ended up with twins. And then the the doctor who performed the um, the, the the genetic engineering ends up dying, and then they get exposed as being the parents of these twins who are these genetically engineered kids, and um, and then it it kind of goes away from the morality tale and becomes a suspense tale, this thriller of of this uh, um, this religious cult that is after them to eliminate all the people who have genetically engineered their children and they need to be on the run or at least protecting themselves from um, from this this 
brutal and sadistic killer of this cult. And then it turns into a tale of basically like, uh, let's see, what would it be like? I don't know what to equate it to, but the the kids end up having been so genetically engineered as to be basically super babies, super kids. Um, at two and three years old, they're computer savvy, they're more intelligent than their parents, and they've, um, they end up basically going away. And um, I'm not going to kind of discuss how it ends, although the, the ending was particularly heartbreaking because of everything that these parents had to go through. But it was really fascinating, and, and I mentioned it to, to Peter because I've been emailing with him, that he really kind of goes through different genres of book, of books throughout this one book. And it's not a short book. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pretty big book, and it ends up being pretty close to $500. Uh, 500, 500 pages, sorry. But it's got a lot to it. It certainly makes you think. It 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 makes you sweat. Um, I, I told him that I had a lot of sleepless nights, or at least a lot of uncomfortably uncomfortable sleeps, because of of the book and reading the book. And he thought that was he apologized, but then I'm sure he took a little bit of, of glee in that. Um, but it, yeah, it, it 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 makes you question the concept of genetic engineering. It certainly gives you perspective on religious fanaticism and then um yeah then that, that makes you question the relationship that parents have with children so kind of a really interesting book um different from the typical roy gray stuff and um yeah i i enjoyed it um i really liked it so that's it i think uh, i think i spent enough time i i i did finish what book did i just finish I can't. Remember. I think I, I think the Medea Complex was the one I just finished, and so I picked up the new Jonathan Kellerman book called *The Murderer's Daughter*, which I'm uh, less than a hundred pages. Through I have, I have less than a hundred pages left until I finish. And this is a kind of a, either a standalone or the start of a brand new series, and I really like it so far. I, I my I, I am a big fan of Jonathan Kellerman novels especially his Alex Delaware series. And yet, when you look back at my Goodreads, I've pretty much given the Alex Delaware novels anywhere between three and four stars. Very, very, very few of them have gotten five stars. And we're talking 25, 30 books. And it's because they're enjoyable, but they're not particularly weighty. And they tend to have a very similar cadence and trajectory. And yet, this one, I, I kind of feel like he put Got it. I don't want to say that he's phoned in all the previous books because that's not fair, but I think that he really put a lot more effort and time and focus into this one. And so um, I'm kind of enjoying it because it feels much more layered and much deeper than the Alex Delaware novels. So I'll let you know next time what I thought about that, whether the ending lived up to the, the first 270 pages. So I think that's enough for today. This is Rob Cohen for Book Therapy. Find me on Twitter, Book Therapy13, um, BookTherapy13 at gmail.com, Rob Cohen13. Please rate us on iTunes. Reach out to me. Again, I will get to that book that you recommended. I don't remember if it's called Song of the South or Song of the whatever it is, but I will. I promise I get to it. I'm really excited this Tuesday. Um, the sequel... I don't know if it's called a sequel, the fourth book in the 
Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Millennium Trilogy, comes out. This is the girl who, I don't know, went shopping or something. Uh, but this is the one that was written by a, a ghostwriter, not a ghostwriter, by a, another writer, another author, picking up where the series left off, I believe. So far, the reviews have been pretty good. I'm interested in reading it. It comes out on Tuesday, so we'll read that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about The Murderer's Daughter. Um, I'm not sure what else. I don't know. I picked up a couple of classics. I picked up of Human Bondage by Somerset Mom. Looks kind of good, but it's long. I picked up Phantom of the Opera. Picked up uh, Tropic of Cancer by somebody famous. I don't know who it was. I can't remember his name. But anyways, I got a couple of those. Taming, uh, Taming of the Shoe. That's not right. Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Supposed to be a horror novel, but it's only 100 pages long. How bad could that be, right? Um, so yeah, I got a lot to choose from. And uh, I'm not sure what we'll talk about next time. Again, if you have any recommendations, let me know. But until then, this is Rob Cohen for Book Therapy. And thank you for letting me lie on your couch.